Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to the Church Planner Podcast. Before we started today, wanted to tell you about a really special opportunity. Our friends at the Micro Church Conference put on by Brave Future, um, happening April 18th through the 20th in Kansas City. This is for all of you who are wondering what is a new kind of paradigm for missional church planting and church multiplication through smaller expressions of church, what they call rediscovering the smaller way. It's happening April 18th through the 20th. Kansas City is being hosted by Kansas City Underground. It's going to be a great weekend. And they've given us four free registrations to give away. Normally the price is $90, but we will get you into the conference for free. We have four of those. What you can do to enter is go on our Instagram at Church Planter Podcast. And there you'll find um, a, a DM button. Click that DM button. Send us a DM with your email on it and your name and where you serve. So email, name, where you serve, and you'll be entered to win one of four micro church conference registrations. You just get yourself to Kansas City and uh, you can be there and learn a ton from our friends at Brave Futures. Hope you enjoy the show today. I'm Pete Mitchell. He's Peyton Jones, and this is the Church Planner Podcast, brought to you by Church Planner Magazine. Hey, Church Planner, this is Pete Mitchell. And this is Peyton Jones here for another edition of the Church Planner Podcast. And on this particular podcast, we've uh, once again brought in an incredible uh, top-of-the-line guest. I mean, I almost feel like it's redundant every time we get a guest on here. I'm like, oh, this is an incredible guest, but this is uh, one of the ones that that, uh, Peyton and I have been looking forward to the most. and for, for very specific reasons and actually very different reasons. So, Peyton, why don't you introduce our guest, and, and we'll go from there. Well, we have a renowned and award-winning, uh, award-winning author. Uh, he's a journalist. Um, he is well-traveled, probably the most uh, well-traveled author I've ever read. And I have read every single one of his books. This is Philip Yancey, and we are so honored to have you on the show today, Philip. Welcome. Thank you very much. Well, you know, Pete, why are you excited to have him on? Well, see, I'm really excited because, um, you know, several of the episodes I've talked about, one of my buddies who uh, grew up in a, a missionary family, and um, for, for you know, most, in, for most intents and purposes, I mean, he, he wouldn't consider himself a Christian. He certainly doesn't, uh, um, you know, walk uh, as a Christian, and, you know, we were at my favorite place to go, which we've shared on the podcast, Island. And we're sitting there at the bar having a, a beer and, and talking. And, you know, I shared with him one day, you know, I've had a head-on collision with Jesus Christ. And, and um, you know, the guy you used to know back in college, I'm a, I'm a different man now. Now I take Christianity um, seriously. I take my relationship with God seriously. And, and that opened up the conversation. And he said, you know, I think the biggest problem I've got is, uh, you know, the, the problem with suffering, the problem with why is there evil in the world. And um, yeah. I remember it was right about that time that uh, 
I got a copy of Philip Yancey's book, The Question That Never Goes Away. And then uh, I read that book, and I was like, wow, this is, this is spot on for, you know, what's, what's plaguing a, a buddy of mine, what he's allowed to be his excuse as to why, um, why he doesn't follow God right now. So, um, so I'm excited because we got the man on the podcast, and now we can yeah. dive deep on this. But, uh, and I, I would say that, you know, Philip Yancey is kind of a, he's developed over the years a, a really a theology of suffering that's been quite inadequate in the church to uh, deal with the enormity of the subject. Um, it, he never flinches. That's what I love about uh, Philip's books. And this is still by way of introduction, Philip, so we're sorry. Okay, we're going to wax on about you for a minute. <laughs> he's like, hey, when do I get to talk? So, but here's the deal. Uh, Philip put this book on there. His publisher had put the book. The book is called The Question That Never Goes Away. It's on a similar theme. If you know Philip's work, you know that uh, the, the, the topics of suffering and, you know, disappointment with God, where is God when it hurts, are some of the titles of, of his other books. Um, and he doesn't flinch from the big questions. But when this book was uh, offered, they, they put a press release out, but they didn't, um, uh, they didn't announce that it was going to be for free download. So people went and checked it out, and over 100,000 people downloaded it just in those two days that it was offered for free. Now, that tells you something about how much people are thinking about this question. Of course, it's the oldest question in the Bible. Uh, why do bad things happen to good people? So, uh, so we're going to ask you, um, what's behind the title, The Question That Never Goes Away? Well, the first book I wrote is a book you mentioned, Where is God When It Hurts? And that was back before some of your readers were living, I'm sure, in 1977. And uh, I wrote that because I was one of those people. My own faith was blocked by this wall that I kept running into. Why, if there is a loving and powerful God, do these bad things happen? So... Over the years, because I wrote that book, I've often been asked to speak on that topic, where is God when it hurts? In the year 2012, we're coming to the end of 13 now, but at the end of 2012, I was asked in three different places, very different places. One was Japan. It was the first anniversary of the tsunami. They were having a nationwide prayer meeting and wanted me to go to the devastated area and speak to different groups there. That was a natural disaster that killed 20,000 people. These tsunamis are, are some of the most uh, fatal disasters that are happening these days. Mm. Then in October, I was uh, asked to go to Sarajevo, scene of a great brutal war crime where the city was under siege, and every day these mortars and shells would rain down, much like it's happening in Syria right now. Mm. And 10,000 people died there. And once again, I'm asked to speak on where is God when it hurts. And then at the very end of the year, in December, it was December 28th, actually, I was asked to go and spend the weekend in Newtown, Connecticut, which was still reeling from that terrible school shooting where 26- and 7-year-old children were shot down by a gunman, again asked to speak on where is God when it hurts. And I realized that over the years, as I've gone in those places, I've learned some things that I certainly didn't anticipate in 1977 when I wrote my first book. I learned some things that the church does wrong, and I learned some things that the church does right. 
And I wanted to sit down and write a not a long book, not a dense philosophical book, but rather a, a practical book that can help people, not just in those big times. And they kept coming. You know, as I was writing the book, the Boston Marathon bombings happened, the mm. tornadoes in, in Oklahoma, and just one thing after another. But also the small things, relatively small. Your friend who has cancer, your child who's disabled. What I've learned is pain is pain. And you, you can't say, oh, okay, you, you can't suffer nearly as much as the people in Japan because only one person died, your son, not 20,000 people. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. When yeah. it hits you, it hits you 100%. And yeah. there are some things that we believe as Christians that can bring comfort and hope to a world that doesn't always sense that from the church. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in many ways, what, what I loved about reading you, and I, I, I think this is something for our church planners to know. Number one, this is going to be the question that never goes away. This is going to be the question that when you're front lines dealing with people, you are going to be dealing with this question. And Philip, you're not removed from this. It's, I mean, what, what struck me in reading this book in particular, the question that never goes away, is that, you know, you're writing about Japan, but you're not talking about watching your, your television set. You're saying, and then I went there, and I interviewed, and you're using, and, and then Sandy Hook, and then I went there, and I, I interviewed the parents and the paramedics. I mean, that's one of the things. You were up close and personal. What I've always appreciated about your writing is this is not armchair theology. This is not ivory tower. This is someone who's been in the trenches, and I think in many ways, uh, what I appreciated about you was you're not a pastor. You are a journalist. And that was the thing I first connected with you on because I thought this dude, he's just a dude. He's just a, a guy. <laughs> and, you know, he's just being honest. You and, and you've always had, like, an integrity and an authenticity and some guts. I mean, the title, um, I remember reading that you got a lot of uh, – uh, he for writing the title Disappointment with God. But like, like Pilate, hey, I have written what I've written. This is what it needs to be. Because this is what people are connecting with. These are their questions. This is what they're asking. And I mean, you know, looking at your uh, your bio, you've won 13 gold medallion awards. <laughs> these, these figures don't lie. Whatever those things are, huh? <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, um, one of the things that, that really struck me that I wasn't aware of, I'm, I'm sure I'd read that your father had polio, but it was your description in the opening chapter of this book where you had to look at your father through a glass um, from a very young age, and, of course, he passed away when you're young. I mean, suffering, it, it, it kind of, for me, I was like, no wonder suffering has been something that's always pulled on your heart. No, that's, that's true. Um, you're right. I My stance is a true stance, and that's, I'm a journalist. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a theologian. So I, I don't feel any obligation to stand up in the pulpit and say, this is what you should believe. <laughs> I kind of yeah. start with uh, with my own pilgrimage and people around me. And when they ask questions, I ask questions. And a journalist gets to go to people who can bring help. And that's what I've done. I wrote a few books with Dr. Paul Brand, who helped me so much in understanding this whole issue of suffering. The 
incident that you mentioned, you know, we don't figure out our lives till later looking back, do we? And mm-hmm. I, I can clearly see how that theme of suffering has been a cloud hanging over me. I never really knew my father. I was a young child, but I was affected by his death every day. And the subplot going on there was that Christians in the church, well-meaning Christians who loved him, who cared for him, believed there's no way that it could be God's will for him to die. He's a young man. He's gone to Africa as a missionary. He's going to be healed. And through their prayers, they decided to remove him from the iron lung and trust in healing. Well, it was about 10 days later that he died. And that was a huge crisis of faith. And I lived under that cloud of unanswered prayer and of people who thought they had God's will figured out and they didn't. And what I learned early on is what you believe about these questions matters. Mm. A lot of people out there, they do not understand that God is on the side of the sufferer. They hear the message from the church that God is against you. They kind of instinctively feel that. If Mm. you get sick, if something goes wrong... I mean, even insurance companies call them acts of God, you know, tornadoes, hurricanes. Yeah. And, and they think, well, God is against the one who suffers. Well, we have the, the most clear picture of how God feels about those who are going through hard times in Jesus, who came, to quote Eugene Peterson's the message, he moved into the neighborhood. He moved into our neighborhood. And it wasn't a pristine suburban neighborhood. It was a, a messy, it was a stable, it was a, uh, the massacre of the infants by an oppressive tyrant. You know, that was the neighborhood that God moved into. Mm. And all you have to do to figure out how God feels about people who suffer is follow Jesus around and just watch how he responds to a widow who lost her only son or a Roman centurion even whose servant fell ill, you know, an enemy soldier. Jesus always responds with compassion, with hope, with healing. People always want to pin him down on why did this happen, why this person. He deflects those questions, basically says, there's no way you can understand that. That's not your job. Your job is, are you ready if something terrible should happen to you? Yeah, and and that's, that's one of the things that, that I've noticed with you. You have maybe unwittingly constructed a theology of suffering over the years because it, it's fascinating to me to look at disappointment with God and to almost feel like the, the central thrust of that was to, to kind of rebuke uh, that tendency of people to try to have all the answers mm-hmm. and to just, you know, almost just shut up, don't say anything, uh, don't try to play uh, God, don't try to be God's messenger, don't... You know, and, and, and really, in a sense, dealing with uh, our tendency to be like Job's friends, miserable counselors, all of you, and using theological platitudes to try to put a Band-Aid on a flesh wound. And what I've appreciated over the years is, and, and it's fascinating to me, to, to trace, I'm, I, I read uh, the question that never goes away, and I thought, that is some deep theology. But it, it appears to me, in tracing your works, that it's been decades in the making, but it is profound. And you, from day one, and maybe maybe you could talk to us a little bit about this journey, you have refused to put a Band-Aid on a flesh wound, and I believe it's produced amazing results. Your patience has developed a deep-seated theology. Well, I have seen 
a lot of things that the church does wrong. Uh, I live here in Colorado. I live by a, a creek. And some of your listeners may remember that that last summer, the summer of 2013, we had a flood here in Colorado. Yeah. And I was out every night uh, wading through soggy grass with a ruler, seeing how close that creek was coming to flooding my entire house. And mm. normally it's about six feet below the bank, it, five feet, four feet, three feet, two feet. It got up to 10 inches. And it would just have been a disaster. I would have been uh, in my office. Everything would have been would have been destroyed. And uh, I turn on the radio one day, and here's a radio pastor from Colorado Springs who is giving one of these pronouncements. You know, is the reason we had the floods and the wildfires this year is that our legislature passed <laughs> laws led, uh, legalizing marijuana and killing babies and and being open to civil unions. You know, it goes on and on. And that mm. is the message that a lot of people think about the church and about God yep. and and even well-intentioned things. I remember watching a movie, I don't even remember the name of it, but Kevin Costner was in it, and uh, so the father dies. I think he's in the war. In a the war, war. Yeah. yeah. And the little boy is, uh, is trying to be comforted by his mother, and his mother says, well, um, God needed your daddy. And there's a poignant scene where the little boy goes outside and just screams to the heavens, yeah, but I need him too. And yeah. so many of the things that we say, uh, God, uh, if only one person becomes a Christian at this funeral, it will be worth it. You know, how does that sound to the people who lost their mm. relative, their loved one? I have heard these things, and I, I am tempted to say these things. We want to say something. We want to make it better. What I learned from the book of Job is that most of the theories we come up with are not helpful. In fact, it can even be destructive. When I go around and ask people who have been through a very hard time, who helped you most? They they have never mm. said, "Oh, it was a it was a PhD philosopher from the University of Oxford." You know, they have mm. never said they they've really almost never say a seminary professor. Often won't even say a pastor. They'll say the person that helped me most was my grandmother. She had time. She had attention. She would come and sit in this chair, and if I needed water, she'd get me water. If I was cold, she'd bring me a blanket. She didn't talk to me. She was just available there. And that is what the church should be, and I would have to say is. When I go to these places, like Japan, like uh, New Orleans after the Hurricane Katrina, like Newtown, the church is there, and the church mm. is actually applying that kind of practical help. It doesn't yeah. get the same publicity as the people who just pop off with some theory, you know, the hurricane came here because uh, we believe in gay marriage or something. Now, that gets on the media. But actually, there are people on the ground, and I'm trying to embolden those people and to remind us, this is what we should be about. Paul is so clear in Second Corinthians, he uses this phrase, the God of all comfort. And you who have experienced the God of all comfort are now commissioned to spread that same comfort around to those who need it. Yeah, you know, and it's it's fascinating because when I read uh, your books for the first time, um, I remember feeling liberated out of the easy answers. I remember kind of breathing a sigh of relief, like, whew, I, like, almost like you gave me permission as a leader and as a pastor to say, I don't have the answers because... 
uh, as you pulled the curtain away, um, you kind of said, look, the Bible's been asking these questions, and you walked me through the scripture and said, it doesn't answer them. It deals with them, though. It raises the same questions. And I realized I had a bridge to non-believers that were asking these same questions, as Pete pointed out, that they're the major barrier to faith. But when I was able to point to the scripture in the Psalms and Job and, you know, all these different places and say, this is like a major message of the Bible, yeah. that was very liberating to me. And I can remember when the, uh, back in, um, I believe it was, was it 2003, 2004, when the uh, great tsunami hit? Um, 2004 you know, it was, yes. Mm-hmm. 2004, and I can remember my neighbor, who was not a Christian, coming, you know, because I was a pastor, and she wanted answers. Mm-hmm. And she sat across and she said, now you're a minister, can you please explain this to me? Mm-hmm. Where is God? So that was actually the question she asked, same as your book, though. where is God? And all this. Where do you see him, Peyton? Honestly, can you tell me you see him in this? And I had just gone to uh, the Tsunami Concert Appeal in Cardiff, which, you know, apparently mm-hmm. according to people all over the internet right now, is a very, very, uh, <laughs> very uh, uh, godless, um, <laughs> uh, particularly around the holidays or weekends, you know, um, lots of debauchery, lots of, you know, drinking and drugging. And, and so you're down, it's, it's just downtown, is just gnarly, lots of fighting, paramedics and uh, you know, and so, but I went to this concert that they put on a tsunami appeal, and I stood in a stadium packed with thousands of people. Uh, Eric Clapton played, Jules Holland, a lot of a lot of rock bands, and it was all for the benefit of the people that had been uh, um, uh, suffering. And it was an appeal, and it was to raise money. They raised millions of, of pounds, uh, and. I, my mind immediately went to that, and I said to her, I'll tell you where I saw God. I saw God in that stadium. And and, and I had to trace this answer back to, to what I had thought. Probably if I hadn't read your books, I wouldn't have had this type of answer. And I just want to read a highlight from the book, just something that you said that to me was so profound that uh, it, you said this. After spending time in Japan in Newtown, I've adopted a two-part test I keep in my mind before offering counsel to a suffering person. First, I ask myself how these words would sound to a mother who kissed her daughter goodbye as she put her on the school bus and then later that day was called to identify her bloody body. Would my words bring comfort or compound the pain? Then I ask myself what Jesus would say to that mother. Few theological explanations pass those tests. The only way I know to respond with comfort and healing as Jesus did is to fully embrace the mother's grief and to assure her that God feels more grieved than she does. In the words of David Bentley Hart, who is a theologian, when I see the death of a child, I do not see the face of God, but the face of his enemy. That's some deep stuff. (laughs) And I have to say, I learned a lot about that from my wife, who worked as a chaplain in a hospice. This particular hospice, the average person who went there lived less than two weeks. Mm-hmm. And every day when she was called in, she would just wait and be on call, it was because somebody was about to die. So she saw scores and scores of deaths and met with many families. And there is a place to put, to put that test to work. <laughs> mm-hmm. what, what words can you give to 
someone or to the family of someone who is hours from death. Um, we don't know what to say, and and part of it is saying that. I don't know what to say, mm-hmm. but I do yeah. know how God feels because I know through Jesus God is always on the side of the sufferer. And I know a lot of your listeners out there are involved uh, in church planting, so they're dealing with the kind of people you've described, people who don't have a faith in God, and, and this is one of the first questions they run into. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a Quaker saying that says, uh, my enemy is a, stor- is a person with a story I have not heard. And I would almost change that to my, my theological opponent is a person whose questions I have not asked. <laughs> and, oh, wow. and I would recommend that, um, and I'm sure you do this, because if you're going to plant a church, you've got to do that. You start by listening to their questions, not start by yeah. finding out what their questions are so you can give them an answer, but start by truly asking their questions. And unless you do that, then you're not going to meet that deep thirst. You, we have to stand on the side. And that's what Job's comforters did not do. With one exception, actually, they, uh, if you go back and read the book, they sat down, were so moved by what had happened to Job. They tore their clothes, put ashes on their head, and sat in silence for seven days. Mm. If they had just kept their mouths shut, they would have been very good <laughs> comforters. <laughs> it's when they opened their mouths and they felt that we gotta, we've got to explain this somehow. Something's gone wrong. And they come up with these theories. And the Bible devotes, you know, a good portion of the space of the book to those theories. And then at the end, that wonderful ironic twist where God appears and and looks at these three quasi-theologians and says, these guys, I'm not even going to listen to their prayers, Job, unless you pray on their behalf. Um, you, who came so close to throwing off all of your faith and trust, you hung in there. And because of that, I'll listen to your prayers. It's a, it's a beautiful twist and a beautiful yeah. endorsement of the agony that we all go through at times. Mm. Um, not as much as Job in most cases, but it may feel like what Job is going through because you, you think, God is my enemy. That's just the instinctive reaction, and Job thought that all the way through until God appeared and said, Job, you have no idea what was going on. You're, I wasn't your enemy. You're my hero. <laughs> Do you realize yeah. what you just did? And mm. it's, it's a great twist at the end of the book. You know, that is that is so amazing. I've, I've never actually thought of it that way, that uh, even if we take it out of the context of the Bible, we just think about maybe one of the parents, uh, you know, from Sandy Hook and you know, the amount that we would learn as these people have worked through their grief and the perspective that they have, um, you know, they, they may not have ever read a book on theology, but I would imagine, as you mentioned, God being the God of all comfort, that what they would come up with, you know, like you said, they are the heroes. The people that go through it are the heroes. And, uh, they are, and I, and I met some of those people in Sandy Hook. One woman particularly had written a a uh, little article that she was trying to get published in the op-ed page of the New York Times, but I think it was it was just a little too God talk for them. <laughs> but she was saying everybody everybody talks about let's get back to normal. Uh, what kind of normal are we talking about in this society? A normal where 
a, a person who's mentally ill can break into a school, have access to guns, and, and shoot up my daughter. You know, what kind of normal are we talking about? And, yeah. then she, and then she talks about how our society needs to change, that there's something deeply wrong with it, and here's what we need to do. And it was a beautiful testimony, and she, she is one of those heroes. Here she had just endured the death of her daughter and was in the middle of that um, agony, and yet she was able to look beyond that to try to bring comfort and, and a prophetic message to a whole country. Mm, that, is, that is deep. Well, you know, the, uh, the, the thing for me, I, it, it's interesting. You mentioned your wife working in the hospice. I trained as an RN, um, worked uh, actually to, to work with AIDS patients um, uh, as, as they were dying. I thought, you know, no one's showing them the love of Christ. Mm-hmm. This was back in the 80s. And uh, I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll become an RN and, and sit with them. And, 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 and that's what I thought I would do. I never realized I'd get hijacked. Uh, into um, being a, a church planner or a pastor. But uh, in the end, you know, over the years, because I was a church planner, I always had to work other jobs. And so perhaps one of the reasons that your stuff resonated with me is I've, I've watched people die uh, many times. And then for three and a half years in Britain, I, I was a firefighter. And, um, you know, the, uh, the things that I saw there, I mean, you know, I can remember one time, uh, and I and I don't talk about it often because it, it it's strange. It's like uh, when when you deal with this stuff, it's almost like a sacredness. That was someone's life, and you you sense you know something. You, you were a part of something, and even if it's traumatic. But I I can remember on one occasion uh, a gentleman who uh, uh, his house had burned down and his grandkids were in it, and I can remember standing on the street and holding him back. Um, as a firefighter, yeah. and because he was so distraught and nobody had arrived yet who could deal with him, um, at the time I, I was a, a church planner in, in town, and my uh, co-worker said, hey, Jonesy, can you take your fireman hat off right now? Can you just be a pastor to him? Mm. And I, I can remember doing that, literally taking my, my helmet off and walking him aside and like, at that moment, there was there was nothing to say. There was just to be there, just to be there. And I think that uh, one of the things that, that you raise in your book, uh, the question that never goes away, is um, when people connect through suffering, there is a glimpse of God there, and that sense that we're not alone, that that is the glimpse of God, that when you see that compassionate heart coming through other people, uh, that is a piece of God's heart. Yeah, God. Has, I was just going to say there's there's a uh, there's a line in the book that I highlighted that I think speaks right to this. Um, Philip, you wrote only a suffering God can answer whether this planet is worth the cost. Mm-hmm. I have a clue to the answer though. After talking to the parents in Newtown who lost a son or a daughter, if you ask them. The six or seven years you had with your child, were they worth the pain you feel now? You'll hear a decisive yes. As the poet Alfred Lloyd uh, Tennyson wrote after the death of a young friend, it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Perhaps God feels the same way about fallen creation. Mm. Yeah, yeah when, when God looks at this planet, people will say, if, if God knew what was going to happen, was it worth it? What, mm. With all the 
terrible things that have happened with all the pain and suffering, was it worth it? And if you have uh, ever talked to a parent of a child who was born with some genetic problems and went through all sorts of surgeries the first three or four years and then dies, you'll get an answer to that question. Oh, yes, it was worth it. These were the four years that I have. And then, of course, we as Christians have a, an additional promise that those aren't the only years you'll have. There will be a reunion. Yeah, your story about the... Uh, about the AIDS clinic, though, reminds me of a wonderful experience I had as a journalist. One of the great privileges I have is getting to meet people and spend time with people that I can learn from. And I spent a full day with Henry Nowen, who uh, is a psychologist and then priest, yeah. who spent the last years of his life working among those who were severely mentally challenged in a, in a beautiful home called La Arche in Toronto. And uh, I've written about that experience. It was a great day. But he had just come back from San Francisco. It was early in the day of the AIDS epidemic. And it was actually called the gay men syndrome at that time mm. because almost all the people that they were seeing, they were trying to figure out this strange disease, happened to be gay men. And that was the official name by the CDC. <laughs> he, he went out and spent uh, a week in one of the clinics, the church, some of the people were were giving that judgment, you know, that rejection, and others were responding with fear. And he said, no, I'm a priest. I'm supposed to be on the front lines. So he went up and down the, the beds. It was an open ward. And he went up and down and said, um, I'm a priest. And part of my job is to listen to people's stories. That's what we do. Um, I'd like to hear your story if you feel comfortable sharing it. And so one by one, he would hear these stories. And he said he, he was still uh, just full of the experiences that he had. He said, Philip, these guys, and they were all guys, these guys were dying, literally dying for love. And mm. when I went away from that time, I, I decided my prayers should change. There are people that I disapprove of. There are people who bother me. And I'm going to start praying, God, help me to love not that ungodly person, not that atheist, not that, but that thirsty person. Because these yeah. guys were obviously thirsty. And as they told mm. me their stories, they were actually dying because of their thirst. They were looking for love and yeah. it wouldn't satisfy. And then I yeah. would say, okay, did it satisfy your thirst? No. And a few of them mm. I would say, would you like to hear about a living water that will satisfy? And if they were ready, we'd go ahead and tell them. And that is what that is what a church planter does, isn't it? You go Absolutely. out and you listen to the thirst that's already there. Listen carefully, slowly, not quick with an answer, but hearing that thirst. And then would you like – and the next question is, did you find an answer to that thirst? And oftentimes you'll hear no. Mm -hmm. Would you like to hear about a possible answer? And And if they're ready – that's the time to talk. That's awesome. Hmm. We are, unfortunately, uh, Philip, I could talk to you forever. And, you know, here we are. I, I told Pete that the wax, well, you know, probably Wayne, the, the fanboy, you know, uh, uh, as I'm talking to you. Because as I told you before the interview, I've read all of your books. Um, and I recommend to any of our listeners, uh, I don't. I don't think it matters what book you get, but I think you need to definitely add to your collection uh, his latest book. It is 
It is distilled wisdom uh, from the many years of Philip's experiences. Um, and, you know, uh, the, one of them that, that really resonated, uh, having lived in Europe, was Rumors of Another World, uh, published by Zondervan, because it was written from, you know, it was written to people that were searching. And I remember reading, first off, uh, if you're not familiar with Philip's, I'm not saying this for to, uh, to butter you up, Philip, but I'm saying this for our listeners. It is a masterpiece of writing. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you, uh, how you feel about that particular book, but it was, uh, it was so well written. It blew me away. Um, some of the stuff that you write about in there, um, it's scientific. Uh, he goes through it, but, but we're not talking about that book so much. But the connection is this: that book, Rumors of Another World, and his most recent book. Uh, the question that never goes away are specifically uh, good for handing out to people. Um, mm. So if you, as a church planner, if you're going to come up with this question, I would recommend you to invest in some copies for your church plan and have them on hand, have them ready to hand to people. People can go away and he will lead them to the cross. That's one of the, the amazing things about this book, what Philip just said about his experience uh, in the AIDS hospice. This is something that, uh, that he does in, in the book itself. So uh, we want to thank you uh, so much for coming on the program. Um, I'm still a little bit dazed and awed that uh, we're actually talking to you. If I'm going to wax on the fanboy now towards the end at the last minute, but we want to thank you so much for coming on. And I really believe that uh, you have provided an invaluable arrow in the quiver of people who are frontline. Well, yeah, absolutely. we work together, don't we? Because a, a book can reach a place uh, of a person who wouldn't ever go to a church, and yet it can it can plant a seed that that may bring that question to the to the fore that that person will go to a church planner that you've already ministered to. So let's all work together as a team. Absolutely. Well, and you have, uh, you have actually deepened my faith. You have changed my faith. I, you know, one day when I, uh, there are many, many things that if people read your books and listen to me long enough, they'll start hearing Philip Yancey coming out of me. So anyways, <laughs> If you ever need a job with my PR person, let me know, okay? <laughs> I do it for free already. Okay. God bless you so much, Philip. We appreciate you coming on, and uh, thank you, and we look forward to whatever you're going to write for us in the future. All right. I'll get back to work right now. <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. Take care. God bless. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another weekly episode of the Church Planner Podcast with Pete Mitchell and Peyton Jones. We'd love to hear your comments on this episode of the Church Planner Podcast. Visit us online and let us know what you thought at churchplannerpodcast.com. If you subscribe to us via iTunes and have enjoyed the podcast, leave us a positive review. The more positive reviews we receive in iTunes, the more iTunes will promote us to other church planners who would benefit from this show. This podcast is brought to you by the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the iTunes newsstand or online via churchplannermagazine.com. dot com.